What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Cuba to You. This podcast exists to bridge the gap between Cuban Americans and their heritage and introduce non-Cubans to Cuban culture and history. Today, we're going to talk about a common through line that identifies and is really the true identifying trait of the Cuban Revolution. So many people might have a general understanding as to what the Cuban Revolution comprised of. Uh, they might have seen pictures of Ernesto Che Guevara. They might be familiar with Fidel Castro. Um, in some rare examples, they might be familiar with the 26th of July movement and specific events that took place throughout. Um, but I think that there's something about the Cuban Revolution as led by the 26th of July movement and Fidel Castro that really made it different and has carried even to this day the same identity, the same, we'll call it DNA. I think the true DNA of the Cuban Revolution was not anything other than the arbitrary punishment system. In other words, I think that the entire Cuban Revolution is based, has survived, and looks to continue to be based on arbitrary sentencing. That has been the biggest strength rather, or the biggest tool of survival, of self-survival of the Cuban government. I'm going to be giving you a few examples of this throughout the years, as well as a current day example, and how these things tend to parallel over time. When Fidel Castro sought to overthrow Fulgencio Batista, his revolution was popularly accepted by the public for the most part. A revolution was needed. There were multiple revolutionary groups. There was not just the 26th of July movement, which was <clears throat> which was Fidel's group. There were also other groups of other revolutionaries who had nothing to do with Fidel and were not even aligned with him politically. Either way, a revolution was needed and therefore the public pressure for an overthrow was strong, was very compelling. So the idea that Fidel Castro or any revolutionary would have support from the people is obvious. It's it's assumed. I don't think anybody I don't think anybody says that Fidel Castro did not have the support of the people. On the contrary, he had the support of most of the people. I think the only contention somebody would have in delegitimizing Fidel Castro's revolution and the only evidence and rather the strongest argument to delegitimize Castro's revolution and installation of a government system is the way they went about justice. I think all good, positive, successful, democratic governments or systems rely on an equally good, fair, democratic system of or process of justice. Justice is an important part of society. It's important to the fabric of society that people who commit crimes be given proper justice and that people who have things stolen from them are, you know, justice is served for them and there is proper restoration and restitution for that. That is, that is strong to a society that that exists. And I think that the biggest problem with the 26th of July movement and Fidel Castro was a complete abuse of judicial power. And the way that they would do this is through arbitrary, cruel, 
and excessive sentencing of all kinds. Let's start first, no further than mid-1950s, Fidel Castro and his guerrillas from the 26th of July movement are in the Sierra Maestra, in the mountains, and they are plotting the many ways that they are going to make their entrance and overthrow Batista. They are communicating through radio. They are attempt. They are actually hosting visitors uh, from the United States, uh, often uh, journalists. Uh, Andrew St. George visited and took various photos of Fidel Castro's group and his men in this camp to document what it was like to live and be a revolutionary, a Cuban revolutionary, a 26th of July movement revolutionary in the camp. And one of the things that he documents in his, in his pictures, which by the way, Andrew St. George, you can look him up and look his pictures up. They're actually archived at Yale, all these images. And one of the things that he documented was the execution system that even before having obtained any sort of power in Cuba, even before having took and taken the office, even before Fulgencio Batista fled in the 1st of January, 1959, even before that, they were already executing people through firing squad and already had a sense of, or a kind of faux tribunal. So they already had like courts that they were conducting, obviously with no actual governing power, but in their own woods, they were kind of the law and order. And so they had tribunals that they would conduct. And these tribunals would end with an arbitrary punishment of some kind, majority of those punishments being execution via firing squad. Their selected method of execution was to tie someone to a tree and shoot them in the head with multiple rifles. Where this becomes compelling is who was shot. Now, there's images in Andrew St. George's collection that would show that there were bandits in those woods and those in those mountains that were causing all sorts of trouble in the in the villages there, and and those were some of the people that were shot. And though that might be easy to go ahead and explain, that might be something that even you listening to might say, well, they're bandits. I mean, they're bad people. They pillage and rape and hurt people. Why shouldn't they be shot? And maybe you'd have a fair argument there. Uh, let's keep in mind there was no due process. There was no time of there, there was no court to protect them. No lawyers, obviously, to protect them. Was, this was just something that was arbitrarily decided by the group. Who else was shot? Well, one of the most troubling examples is that of Olga Suarez. Now, Olga Suarez was, you could look her up. If you type in Andrew St. George, Olga Suarez in Google, her image will come up. And what you'll see in this image, if you look it up right now, and you listen to me while looking at it, what you'll see in this image is a woman who is genuinely disturbed. She's She seems to be holding her head. She has a stressed face on. And the reason that this is the case is because Andrew St. George took this picture minutes before she was to be shot via firing squad. This was a woman who was accused of being a spy for Batista's government. So her crime was supposed supposed espionage, unproven, but, but assumed. And if you know anything about Fidel Castro and Brian Littell documents this well in his book, After Fidel, where he talks about the rise of Fidel and Raul Castro and the way that they interacted with one another. One thing about Fidel Castro was he was incredibly suspicious 
and he was incredibly untrusting of people and very easily could assume you were a spy and right then right then and there you could be either killed or expelled from the camp and so there was an arbitrary nature to this that didn't have the protection of a due process to legitimize it Olga Suarez is a very troubling story because if you look at the image, there's something about it that, that reaches out to you and makes you realize that humans ought not execute this kind of arbitrary, godlike punishment over somebody else. The ability to take one's life without due process is something that actually seeped in to the government that was later installed by the Cuban Revolution and by the 26th of July movement. So fast forward, this is what they're doing before they even get power. Okay, so if anybody was wondering if the 26th of July movement was you know, good all along and they just got power and then were corrupted because of the power, I am going to categorically deny that by saying before they even had power, they were executing people based solely on suspicion of espionage, which should carry with it a different, more appropriate type of punishment, even if it were true. Now, let's fast forward to the Cuban government seizing power. Obviously, it is no secret. There's videos of this online. They're disturbing to watch, so I, I do ask that you do so with discretion. No secret that the Cuban government's form of execution was the firing squad. There was something called El Paredón, which means, you know, I guess loosely translates to the wall, where people would go, stand in front of seven people with holding rifles, one general would stand a little bit closer off to the side because his job was to take his pistol and finish the job. After they had shot this man with seven rifles in the chest and head, this general's job was to walk up to the carcass and shoot what is called tiro de gracia, or rather, I guess, a finishing blow, something akin to the spear through Christ on the cross, and shoot the subject in the head one final time. Prisoners who would stay in the prisons where these firing squad executions would take place, like my personal friend Angel Pardo, and many prisoners who have documented this in documentaries and literature throughout, talk about hearing those, those firing squad events. And what they always hear is a shout of, long live a free Cuba, or long live Christ the King, and then immediately seven rifles go off, and then shortly after come the tiros de gracia, or the extra shots, the finishing blows by that general that's in charge of doing that. So prisoners who are in jail for political reasons are listening to this and are being threatened with the same fate. And it's completely and entirely arbitrary who gets it and who doesn't. There isn't a level of political involvement that, that gets you the, the wall. It's truly and utterly arbitrary in many ways. It is something that there is no written method to decide or written method to determine whether or not this justifies a firing squad. No matter what you think about the death penalty, even in this country, in America, there are certain things that just absolutely would not require the death penalty. If I steal a Kit Kat bar, like that's not going to suddenly lead to the death penalty if because somebody decides it. In Cuba, this is not the case, though. In Cuba, these penalties are arbitrary, especially at that time. If you worked with Batista, if you were a member of his police, if you were an employee and, and you were in all any way associated with him, you would get put to the wall and shot by seven rifles. 
That method of silencing so violently any opposition that could exist, because we live in a country right now in America with political opposition. If there's a Republican in the presidential office, in the Oval Office, then you can consider every Democrat that exists in America technically opposition. They oppose the policies and views of the current sitting president. But in America, there are democratic means to express dissent. In Cuba, there are not. And so if you are going to do to commit the harmless crime of merely being opposition, like in this country, we have no problem with, you could be put to the wall and killed at that time. I'm talking the early 60s and 70s. These are arbitrary, completely baseless punishments and clearly do not suit the crime. But that is something that was characterized or characterized the Cuban governments or the Cuban revolution and the people ahead, the people at the helm of the Cuban revolution rather. So we continue. We continue to the Bay of Pigs invasion in which many members of the 1100 Brigade were captured. Now, I want you to understand that the majority of the people who, who were invading on the Bay of Pigs were Cuban, born, had left Cuba years, just a few years prior when the Cuban Revolution triumphed, and were going back essentially to take their country back. This was not a CIA operation. This was CIA aided, not fully as we find out later when Kennedy did not uh, send air support, when there was no air support and the Cuban people thought they were going to have air support and they didn't. And so they were easily defeated, but it was CIA assisted. They worked with the CIA, but this was not the CIA in particular executing this event. This was Cubans who were CIA trained. There is a difference. It's subtle, but there is a difference. Now, one of the things that the brigade members talk about is the treatment that they received as prisoners. Now, understand, capturing somebody who invaded your country often doesn't garner any sort of surprise or shock. But you have to understand that these were Cuban people. Okay, these were these were the Cuban people. It is no different than quite literally no different than what had happened just a few years prior with the 26th of July movement. In other words, the Cuban Revolution was quite literally the same exact thing. The only difference is one came from Miami and the other came from Cuba itself, although really came from Mexico. When Fidel went and met and was finally introduced to Che Guevara and they came in on the Granma ship, so it's not like there isn't any elements here where there's like a revolutionary people in, in invading a country and trying to overthrow the government. So if the Bay of Pigs or if the acts of the Bay of Pigs are so similar to the thing that Cuban, that the Cuban government is calling their beloved revolution, then it, then it shows that punishing harshly those people almost indicts the Cuban government themselves. Because if they are saying that that act in and of itself is worthy of firing squad death, then what about the act that they committed to get into power themselves? Begs an interesting question of hypocrisy, begs an interesting question of convenience. 
So the only people who were allowed to be revolutionaries were the ones who had taken the power. We're in a revolutionary state. We're now in a military-run state. But any 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 revolutionary activity, anybody trying to to inspire another revolution, is going to be treated with what? An iron fist. So what does that show? It was never really about revolution, but about maintaining power. The only way to maintain power is to silence voices. And the best way to silence a voice is to make sure it never speaks again. I digress. One of the most disturbing stories from these brigade members who were captured happened when the Cuban officials put a large group of men, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite exactly sure of the number, this is a story that is documented by Juan J. Gonzalez in the documentary Yo los he visto partir, or I have seen them leave, or I've seen them die. Um, and this man tells a story of how a, a large group of the brigade members were shoved into a, essentially a trailer. Think about a trailer that has no no windows in it. It's just like a dark trailer. And they were all shoved in there to travel from Hiron to Havana, a very long trip. And there's, they're obviously not being taken care of. There's no food or water in there. They're just shoved into this tank of sorts and they're, they're driven over, over miles and miles and miles and hours and hours of a trip. Of course, on the way to Havana, many people in that trailer die from suffocation. And so there's a sense of brutality and carelessness that the Cuban government dealt with people who were opposed. And if, and you can't say that this was only because they were invading, because they did this and these type of horrendous things to their own citizens who opposed. So there's no real difference. The things they did to the brigade members were very similar to what they did to the people who were just uh, political prisoners, political dissent in the country. And so there's no court, there's no difference. It's not like, oh, well, they're treating them this way because they're they're from outside of the country trying to come in and invade. No, they. this was just like standard procedure. This is how they did things. This is how they operated. One of the saddest things that Juan Gonzalez says is that he was in there and, again, these are all young men, and there's another one of his friends who is in there as well, and they can't really see each other. They can just kind of hear each other. And his friend turns to him quietly and says, um, man, there's a lot of people dying here. And... The, and Juan looks at him and says, yeah, it's, it's true. Um, it's, it's crazy. And for some reason gets this urge to like give him a, a shoulder rub and tell him, hey, everything's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. We'll get there. And Juan tells us that his friend turns to him and says, I don't want to die. And then before Juan could even answer, he feels his friend's body go limp. And he tries to wake him up and he can't. And so Juan was there and essentially watched and experienced his friend, someone he loved, die in front of him. Because, because of arbitrary punishment, the arbitrary nature, the unpredictable nature, and the brutal nature of the way that dissent, political opposition, and even crime is handled in Cuba. Murderers and rapists get treated better in Cuban prisons than political opposition. In fact, murderers often get contracted to hurt political prisoners. 
it's very common for somebody who is in jail for a violent crime to be contracted, to be paid by the Cuban police, by the people in charge of the jail, by the guards, to assault a political prisoner, to do other things to a political prisoner. And so there's clearly no regard for true law and order and justice. The justice stems from arbitrary, arbitrarily based sentiments that have to align perfectly with the Cuban revolution or the Cuban dictatorship. I think after 60 or so years of repression, we can start calling it a dictatorship, right? I continue. Another thing that was very common for the Cuban government was the arbitrary amount of years that they would sentence political prisoners. I think of my friend, Angel Pardo, who was given 30 years of those that he he was able to be released in 24 years due to some help from outside of the country. But the arbitrary amounts, you know, we hear 25 to life, we hear um, 10 year sentences, we hear five year sentences for different things, different levels. The arbitrary number that is placed on prisoners based on the level of crime they committed. My friend Angel Pardo, his only job was to go and scout military bases. So he just walked up to the military base and looked at it and then reported back to his to his group. I strongly doubt in any other country that something as benign as that, an 18-year-old kid by the way, something as benign as that where you didn't kill anyone, where you don't harm anyone, where you're not actually trespassing anywhere, you're just essentially a scout. I doubt anyone gets 30 years for that. But the arbitrary nature of the Cuban judicial system is 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 foundationally connected. It is it is connected through its own DNA to the Sierra Maestra and the arbitrary executions of people like Olga Suarez. In other words, the Cuban government merely found new avenues to do what they were doing all along. The Cuban Revolution, the 26th of July movement, was always executing arbitrary punishments. Now, there were different methods to do it. To some they gave 30 years, to some they gave 25, to some they gave the wall. To some they shot, that's it. That was it. And many times they'd give you 30 years and then you'd die within two under mysterious circumstances. Whether it's you were having a medical issue and they neglected to take medical care of you. Or whether you were quite literally poisoned or murdered in prison. So it's just very interesting that one of the main through lines in every era, in every era, because I can I can talk about 2003 and the crackdown on the political opposition at the time where 80 people were put in prison merely for being a part of the opposition after Oswaldo Paya's successful Varela project, which they then tried to quell. I could talk about all the, the from, from the from the late 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, all the different occasions of arbitrary sentencing. I could talk about the trial of Arnaldo Ochoa, who was the revolutionary of all revolutionaries. He was the most beloved and admired soldier in the Cuban Revolution. He fought in Angola. He was a revolutionary war hero. And because he and a group of men were caught 
with permission from Fidel, engaging in narco trafficking, engaging in drug trafficking, because he was caught doing that, the Cuban government had to make an example of him and his group by absolving themselves from drug trafficking, even though it's well documented now, especially after Juan Reynaldo Sanchez's book, um, The Double Life of Fidel Castro, where he actually documents from a first person experience conversations of drug trafficking between Pablo Escobar, sorry, between um, high Cuban officials and Fidel Castro with relation to Escobar and uh, the drug trafficking rings that Ochoa was eventually killed for, executed for. And one of the people that were being tried testified at that trial of Ochoa and said that he heard multiple officials who were who were over him say that they discussed this at the highest level with Fidel Castro. And so the proof was in the pudding long before Juan Reynaldo Sanchez revealed it in his book. But the point I'm making is even Ochoa, this is in the 80s, the late 80s, understand, this is late 80s, 1989 I believe. They put Ochoa and four and three others up to a wall and shot them in the head and filmed it. They filmed it and they showed it to all of the service members after that, all of the bodyguard officials, all of the military officials so that all of them could know that any in any moment that fate could be theirs. So the Cuban government has a a consistent characteristic from from its from its essential from its beginning from the Sierra Maestra to where where it began to now and that's where I really want to talk about today Luis Manuel Alcantara is currently being threatened with a two to five year prison sentence now something about Alcantara that you need to know is he is merely a political prisoner. He is a performance artist. He does different performances that are anti-Cuban government, that are um, expressing political dissent. He is not a mercenary. He is not a member of a American-backed organization. And at the time of his arrest, and this is where I'm really getting to with the arbitrary, at the time of his arrest, he actually was not committing any crime, nor had he committed any crime. The day he was going to be arrested, he was going to go protest, along with his girlfriend, a censoring of a movie. They thought that they were going to censor a movie, and they wanted to go and, and protest the censoring of a specific scene in a movie. When they found out that that scene would not end up being censored, they canceled their plans of protest and went out for lunch. While out for lunch, the police ran up on Luis, cuffed him, put him in jail. And now they're trying to put a two to five year sentence on him. If you remember my last podcast, I talked to you about Jose Angel Ferrer, who is being threatened with nine years for similar circumstances, being a, being a political figure of opposition. But the Cuban government just kind of decides arbitrarily how many years do we want to give this guy why do we you know we, there really isn't a process and this instability this lack of process is in itself a process this chaos this judicial chaos of sorts creates a severe issue i think with the organizational structure 
of the government. And also, it is more of a revealing detail about the true nature of the Cuban government. That truly, when it all comes down to it, they do not yield to a constitution. Because there is a constitution in Cuba that says you have freedom of expression. I'm not sure if you knew that. But the constitution in Cuba technically says you have freedom of expression. Yet, they want to give Alcantara two to five years for freely expressing artistically. I want to add that at the time of recording this, Alcantara had not been released from prison, but he was released since this was recorded. Um, very good news for him. Jose Daniel Ferrer continues to be in prison, along with many other people who are imprisoned arbitrarily. And so still stands the notion of arbitrary sentencing and imprisonment that has existed since the onset of the communist Cuban revolution and exists today still. There are people who were imprisoned years ago who were given 10-year maximum sentences and had years added to them and added to them and added to them. This is something we've seen all throughout Cuban history, all throughout, rather sorry, all throughout recent Cuban history over the last 61 years or so of Castroism in Cuba.